This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephan Cox. Hello. This week, pollster Stanley Greenberg, his new book, R.I.P. GOP, How the New America is Dooming the Republicans, breaks down the trends, poll numbers, and most importantly, demographic shifts that reveal how the Trump-led Republicans are headed for defeat in 2020. On issue after issue like climate change, marriage equality, health care, and especially immigration, Republicans are out of touch with a changing America. So out of touch, in fact, that this party needs to be crashed and the country wants it to be crashed. And because of who they're fighting for and how they're fighting for it and the values they're fighting for, they have to be defeated and repudiated. We also talk about how Greenberg's numbers indicate across the board wins for Democrats in 2020, especially in important battleground states like Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin. That is all ahead. So stay with us. In 2020, the GOP is headed for a defeat so complete that it marginalizes the party for years. The Democrats sweep into power in Washington and a new progressive era begins. So says my guest, Democratic pollster Stanley Greenberg. And he should know, with a PhD from Harvard, he has been a pollster for several decades, doing significant work with Bill Clinton, British Prime Minister Tony Blair, and even Nelson Mandela, among many others. His new book is R.I.P. GOP, How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. Stanley Greenberg, it is such a pleasure. Welcome. I'm delighted, and, and it sounds so much better when you say it than when I wrote it. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Well, I'll come on as, as your PR guy. You know, I just have to tell you before we start, I love the title. Um, there is so much anxiety about 2020 among right. Democrats, uh, especially with this week's news cycle. So the title alone is reassuring. And, as, you know, as I say in the acknowledgement that the I mean, the reason I wrote this is I woke up after the uh, Women's March um, and said, look, you know, I'm convinced that this is the the last throw, the last battle of a Tea Party dominated party to try to stop the new America from governing. But I know how what, on what a trajectory they're on and they're headed toward defeat. They can all, and their victory will, in fact, create the resistance to push back growing consciousness of what America believes and increase the probability uh, that they will crash even sooner. So that's why I wrote the book. And um, it's more than a hope. I'm confident that it's true. Excellent. Well, let's talk about some of the demographic shifts that you see happening in the United States that are kind of pushing this along. This is what you call the new America. um, And these Mm -hmm. are the things that are threatening the GOP. What are some of the significant changes that you're seeing? Right. The look. The, I mean, the first. I mean, the first piece of this is you know is demographic, uh, which has to do with a country that's becoming dramatically more secular. You know, more uh, younger, millennial, more uh, more diverse, more foreign-born, uh, more you know more unmarried, um, and you know and more metropolitan, um, more non-rural. Uh, and, and all and you know and all those trends are you know proceeding at an accelerating uh, rate. Though it's not just that the trends are there, because I don't believe in you know demographics being destiny, and I actually I, I actually felt guilty because I actually do believe the Clinton campaign came to you know believe uh, that that was true, and I think they operated uh, the campaign on the fact that because he was alienating so many of these groups, um, that that would produce people at the polls, and I've always believed. Um, that they will only turn out for you when you are relevant, when you speak about the issues matter, you make politics matter. And so I 
in some sense, felt guilty about that in May. That probably contributed to my writing the book. And so the first piece of it is the growing trend. The second piece is growing organization, which came, you know, after the Women's March and Resistance. Uh, but then is a changed consciousness of who America is. Because it's, it's one thing to be immigrant. It's one thing or growing foreign born. It's another thing for the country as a whole to say, I recognize our immigrant history. We're an immigrant country. I, I welcome us as a multicultural country. And one of the most powerful things going on right now is what's happening with attitudes on immigration. Man. You know, just a simple word, immigrants to the U.S., about half the country were positive in January, jumped to 59% in July, jumped to 67%, you know, in September. As people watch Trump and say, all right, now I know what I believe. And it's the opposite. And I, and I need to be engaged to stop this. Yeah. Well, and we know that Trump consolidated his base on the issue of immigration. And in fact, you did a series of focus groups back in mid-2018 with parts of Trump's base, and you started to see some fracturing. One of the groups that was divided was Catholics. That was uh, a bit surprising. Can you Indeed. talk about that? Yeah. When he started out, you know, his, you know, his base was the evangelicals above all, but the Tea Party are the, are the ones that, you know, nominated him, but you could not have had his big co his coalition big enough to govern and win um, if he didn't have a big, a very tight Tea Party evangelical, you know, bond. But what I discovered, you know, with the Catholics is that they were divided and they were fighting each other, um, you know, in the groups. Um, and you had some that were clearly getting their information from Fox News and some who were clearly listening to, you know, Pope Francis. And they were actually we're, we're upset about it, you know, immigration uh, in particular and the way in the way they were being treated. And also, I think his style, you know, and his overall style, of, you know, of conduct um, and morality uh, and that, you know, that you know, weighed on them. And they were quite, you know, quite divided. Now, Trump consolidated, consolidated them in the, in the end by running on economic nationalism. You know, they were those, the Catholics were the kind of the most populist, um, you know, amongst the Republicans. And they were, you know, they really liked the fact that it was going after corporations that were outsourcing and was going to, and was going to renegotiate trade agreements. The rest of the Republicans actually were not, you know, were not so clear about trade. Uh, but, but the, but the Catholics were really with them on putting America first. And they hadn't heard that from Democrats. Um, but they and if, so when you get to the 2018 election midterms, the Catholics were pretty consolidated by then. They were divided at the beginning, uh, but he consolidated them by then. But then in the same election in 2018, you note that a pretty good sized chunk of working class voters had gone back to the Democrats. Um, I, you've studied working class voters for a long time, going back to your yeah. work with the so-called Reagan Democrats in the mid-1980s. Why do you think workers came back to the Democrats in 2018? Right. And by the way, the, and the fact that you're saying it is, uh, is, is very important. I talk about it in the book, you know, as well. And you know, a number of people have begun to write about it. But the, but the biggest swing away from in uh, in 18 was in rural voters, uh, 14 point swing. White organized men and women was a 13 point uh, swing, which is which is a huge uh, change uh, in uh, in the vote, and much bigger than the suburban. You know, we focus on the suburban because the, the Democrats have been making gains, 
year by year and were close to winning these seats. So it took only a four point swing in the suburbs for us to pick up those you know, seats. But we had a much bigger swing in the rural areas um, and in uh, with white working class um, you know, voters. And I, I think the I think the problem is not. The reason is, I think, not hard to understand, and you really have to just respect these voters. They aren't fools. Um, they, you know, believe, they believe Democrats uh, governed, you know, for the rich and the banks. I mean, as as much as uh, we did what had to be done to save the um, the economy, and and there's no doubt, you know, that there would have been a the Great Recession would have been the Depression if we had not done what we did as Democrats in power. But the bailout of the banks really defined the, the economic you know, program of the, of the Democrats. Uh, it didn't feel like we attacked corruption. Big money spending grew on a period. There were not gains in you know in in uh, in, in wages, and so and 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 they didn't think we respected uh, working class voters. And so when Trump ran, you know, he promised they they wouldn't touch Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, he promised that, you know, health insurance would, you know, would be, you know, affordable. And and above all, he promised to drain the swamp. <laughs> None of those we, things we, turned out to be true. But, yeah, he did promise. All no. that and, and drain the swamp is probably the most important. If you, if you look at the Bernie Sanders, 45 uh, percent of the vote in the, you know, in, on the Democratic side and Trump running on those issues uh, on the Republican side. Um, and they saw, you know, exactly, you know, what happened that the, the swamp was made, you know, deeper. Uh, there was no, there was no draining of the swamps. Wall Street, you know, dominated the, you know, the cabinet. The tax cut was for the rich. Um, the healthcare was made, you know, less, you know, less affordable. Um, and, you know, and they thought he was governing for himself. That he was greedy and enriching himself and his friends. You know, and the, and the data shows that. And, you know, so they were you know, the, the disillusionment was, you know, was, you know, was very strong, you know, I, you know, and I saw that in you know, our groups and I write about it, uh, but I was surprised by the scale of the shift. And what is I think what, you know, you know, what your listeners are going to be pleased about is those trends have continued afterwards. And that's why I've grown you know, more confident, you know, about what I'm written here. Well, then talk a little bit, about, if you will, about what yeah. in your mind it's going to take for Democrats to keep the working vote in 2020? Well, they're going to have to respect working people. I mean, working people are going to have to be absolutely at the, at the center, you know, of their agenda and their values. Uh, and, if, and, if, and if I look at the, you know, the candidates are running and where they're campaigning, I, I feel pretty confident, you know, across the board uh, as I look at the Democratic nominees, you know, that they've very consciously, you know, went to the counties, went to the states, um, that Hillary Clinton didn't, you know, campaign in, and show they, you know, res, you know, respect them, um, and the uh, they're obviously going to address the uh, the healthcare. All of the candidates have very bold, you know, plans for, you know, for addressing, you know, you know, healthcare. Yeah. Uh, the the voters respond, mo- you know, most strongly to reform and addressing corruption and, and reform, um, and you have to have, you know, a big government-centered investment program that creates jobs. And let me focus on that for a second as an elaboration of that point. Trump was the end of a decade-long period of Tea Party Republican governance that just suffocated government and stopped government from addressing any problem. You know, and it began when Obama was in office. Um, they they forced a kind of budget austerity. And so you always had an incomplete recovery you know, he could never bring to the Congress, you know, any new 
um, economic you know plan, which got immediately uh, you know killed, um, and created the sense that we could do nothing about inequality, stagnant wages, you know, gun violence, uh, climate change, and stopped government from acting nationally and in the states, in half the states, um, for a decade. And so you've had this building desire, demand for government to be active and to you know, address these you know, problems. Um, and that's why the, I think the Democratic candidates have gotten, you know, have gotten a very warm welcome for offering plans that are expansive in areas from addressing, you know, poverty, inequality, middle raising middle class incomes, um, and creating durable American jobs. You know, you touched on this a little bit earlier, uh, but you devote so much of your thinking in the book to the issue of immigration that I would love for you to just circle back and talk a little bit more about why you see immigration as so important and central to what is happening electorally in the United States right now. Yeah, the you know, look, the immigration was you know part of the reason. Look, we have to we have to we have to recognize that immigration is a is, is a central part of how America is changing and an accelerating rate. If you look at the uh, you know from two, from two thousand globally, um, there was massive growth uh, and migration. Um, you know, uh, from uh, from countries, I believe it's one in five ended up in in, in America, um, and views on immigration began to become as important as views on black-white relations um, at the end of the Obama you know presidency. And by the time of Trump, immigration was actually more important as a predictor of vote um, than attitudes on race. Um, though immigration is obviously a racial attitude as well, but black-white you know, versus. Uh, views on uh, Mexican immigrants. And Trump drove that, you know, obviously, you know, down the escalator, you know, he, you know, ran on it and made it his uh, main issue, you know, but the, he's taken immigration to such an extent, the, an extreme extent, one, he's, dri he's driven more affluent college educated and suburban voters and women away, uh, you know, in the, in the process. He's also, you know, forced a lot of people to say what kind of country we are, are and and many, many, many more accept now that we're an immigrant country. And so even though he's played this race card, immigrant card, in the midterm elections, and I played it as hard as you can imagine, uh, he lost in a landslide. And also, if you look at job approval, his job approval on immigration is below his overall approval rating. And so he's being dragged down by a country that even though it wants more control, they want immigration to be managed, and I think that's legitimate. Since he's made this a question of whether we're whether we're an immigrant country or not, Americans are coming down on the side of we're an immigrant country. Um, you know, we're up at sixty-seven percent who have positive views of immigrants to so the U.S. And you know, so he's created about a two-thirds, almost you know, two-thirds majority that believe immigrants benefit the country. And so we're going to have an election where they're going to Republicans are running, you know, as an anti-immigrant party. In a, in a country that's increasingly immigrant and foreign born, and America has, has decided we reject your analysis. It's why I, I say that we're likely to look at the demise of the Republican Party as we know it, you know, rather, you know, than just losing, because they're running on who this country is. And we're going to have an election where they're going to be running as an anti-immigrant party and losing uh, in, I believe, a wave election, a second wave election. Um, and they will and they will have they will have to come to terms with that. 
Well, how does that play out in your mind? I mean, Republicans are not really given to a lot of self-reflection. Uh, I suppose if they no. were, they would want to return to their core values, which are yeah. pro-business, anti-tax. But I'm curious, as you look at your numbers, is that out of alignment with what shifting demographics in America want? In other words, will the GOP be existentially irrelevant? Well, they're probably... They- Look, they're going to be searching for their relevance. What, you know, what is their purpose? Look, we have to have an opposition party, you know, but they've been fighting the social modernization of the country. They've been fighting civil rights and equal rights. They've been fighting women's rights um, in favor of the traditional family and trying to protect the breadwinner, the male breadwinner role. Um, they have been fighting immigration. All things the Republican Party at each point has, you know, has fought these, and so they are. These are cascading issues that make them irrelevant, that make them fighting what is in, inevitable. And so the, the battle, the challenge becomes, you know, what is their relevance? But that, but that also means Democrats, I think, need to be more ambitious about what they want to do with this election. I've been very cautious when, when I've heard people, you know, talk about a return to bipartisanship. This party needs to be crashed and the country wants it to be crashed. Um, and and because of who, you know, who they're fighting for and how they're fighting for it and the values they're fighting for, they have to be defeated and repudiated. But that makes it more like you know what happened to the Whigs when they could not adapt to deal with the slavery question. Yeah, you also talk about, you compare them, uh, the Republican Party during the uh, FDR years as well. Um, I want to shift over and talk about uh, what I think is going to be very exciting to my listeners, and that is why you predict the Dems will win big in 2020. Um, You are predicting an even bigger wave against the GOP in 2020 than we saw in 2018. Uh, Why? What are some of the indicators you're seeing? Because history does not stop. You know, every the reason why I was confident that the country was going to fight back against Trump was I knew both the accelerating trends in the Republican Party fighting the modernizing trends in the country, the accelerating trends in the uh, in the new America that are increasingly conscious of you know, of what they believe in and determined to you know to you know, fight for them. Um, and so when 2018 happened. There was just no reason to believe that history stopped. That the the trends that produced you know 18 wave uh, you know would stop. But let me let me let me just talk about two trends that are pretty stunning. Please. One is on the white working class women, because we're looking at a shift of women, you know, a pushback of women across every aspect of society, you know, against Trump. But the most important would be white working class women. They are 25 percent of the electorate. Trump won them by 27 points in 2016. They narrow, you know, they you know they narrowed, uh, you know, to uh, uh, you know about 20 points uh, in uh, in 18. But in our polls at the beginning of this year, both Biden and Warren, they were only losing by you know 10 points. And the polls we just finished uh, that will be released this week in the battle in the battleground um, states, we have both candidates tied. Not substantial movement. Well, yeah. yeah. So we're talking about wiping out a 27 point Republican advantage amongst white working class women. So the white women, now the men have kind of stabilized 
still supporting Trump by two to one. But the women are not moving. the women. The move moved, and we have we have them at parity. And the, and the second is the level of engagement, how people are following the election. We you know we have a measure. It's a one to ten scale. Ten being you're following the election extremely closely. That number hit, hit its highest num- highest percentage in November of the off year election. It matched the presidential year, and it actually predicted that we'd have such a historic turnout uh, in 18. That number, the percentage following politics extremely closely, always goes down, you know, after an election, then goes up month by month till election day. Well, we've done three polls, and that number now is at 79 percent. It's gone up 10 points um, since the 2018 election. So the level of engagement. And people following politics is so close. At the same time, it's uh, it's reinforcing the realigning trends in the country. Well, I'm no statistician or pollster, but I can anecdotally tell you that certainly that's what I'm seeing among uh, my friends and certainly among indivisible members. Um, you are predicting swing states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and of course the all-important Wisconsin are going to go for the Democrats. Why? What are the trends you're seeing? What are the numbers? Well, the most well, one I'm looking at is the the job approval rating, you know, for the president, which is in the you know the mid to high 30s uh, in those states. Um, that's where it was uh, in you know in the midterm elections, and that was replicated uh, in the election. He's you know he's very much uh, his his approval rating and his vote are very very close uh, right now. You know we you know we have him at 41 percent approval nationally and we have is his vote uh in this battleground uh, uh poll and this battleground polling you know includes ohio and includes texas you know states that are you know not normally at this point in the competitive battleground right uh, but you know even even with that we're showing you know democrats with a, uh, a strong lead and with a strong lead in the industrial midwest and you also are even predicting Arizona and North Carolina will flip for the Democrats. Well, I'm out there. I'm, well, I'm out there on the, uh, the uh, yes, I, I think, um, again, every trend is accelerating. You know, we, we watched in the primary. I think people are engaged, watching so closely. They're forming opinions so much earlier. Bill Clinton didn't announce until September of the about about, about a month ago hmm. um, when he went, when he ran. Um, I think people are you know people are in and out, uh, um, and because people are so engaged and following this election so closely. So you have said that you would like to see a new progressive era coming out of all of this. Broad strokes, what would that look like to you? Well, look, uh, it would mean having an election that is, a, you know, about those issues and creating a, a mandate for those issues. The, you know, I'm um, <clears throat> I'm schooled, um, and e. uh, Schatzneider was an academic, you know, at, at Wesleyan, uh, who believed that, you know, you know, politics was really very much defined by leaders who decide what the fight's about. And it's not just, you know, trying to reflect where the public is at any given time. It's what leaders choose to make the fight about. They're the ones who um, affect who gets involved in politics. You know, there's just different issues. People who understand the moment, decide what the fight's about, um, and that drives it to uh, the issues that fit the fight, creates then a mandate to govern uh, with an agenda. And look, I think the country has been desperate, angry at uh, political leaders that have not understand what's happened 
to working pay by most Americans since the financial crisis, a corrupt politics. Um, and they're looking, they're looking for a, a leader that understands that, understands that working people in the middle class are struggling. All this talk about how great economy was wrong at every point under Obama, um, when Hillary spoke about it, um, when Trump talks about it. Um, and it's desperate for reforming politics. You know, if you look back to the reform era, you know, the key piece was breaking the corrupt bond, you know, bond of politicians um, and business. And I think that's what people, you know, understand. It's that what, liber- it's what liberates politics to act on behalf of the middle class and not for big corporations. Yeah, that does seem to be what shifts things from, say, Teddy Roosevelt to uh, to FDR. It's, it's exciting that we could be looking at that kind of reform coming out of this election. Um, just one more thing before I let you go. Uh, you talk in the book about the power of popular movements, and I'm just wondering how you see the role of grassroots groups like Indivisible driving the change that you talk about in the book. Right, and, and I do want to I do want to thank your members, and I you know, and I had them in mind. When I wrote this book, the uh, you know I, I've dedicated every prior book uh, to some member of my you know my family, and I apologized in the book for not doing it this time, uh, because I I I, uh, I woke up after the women's march and began you know writing this book. I dedicated the book to the women's march and the resistance, uh, which I you know take to be indivisible and the kind of active organization that they uh, produced. And I, you know, and when I looked at the results in 18, you know, I looked at the growing engagement in our polls, but I could see anecdotally what was happening in the real world as people were, were organizing and, and and reaching out, you know, person to person. Um, and it realized itself at 18 in increased turnout, but it's also realized itself in a kind of growing consciousness and demand for an agenda that brings change to uh, politics. So it starts with you. Uh, and I don't say that because I'm doing this podcast. Um, I wrote it in the book, and that's why they wrote the book, and I thank you for it. Stanley Greenberg's new book is R.I.P. G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. Stanley Greenberg, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you very much. And that is it for this week's show. If you guys missed anything, if there's anything you'd like to catch up on, past shows, etc., if you would like links to the things that we talked about, you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there, too. If you would like to get in touch, the email address for the show, as always, is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guest, Stanley Greenberg. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.